Well, if you've been with us, um, it's not going to matter. Because uh, <laughs> we're going to start something new today. So, uh, we are going to start on a journey, and I would like to tell you that it's probably going to be short, but I'll, all honesty, I think it's going to be a while. So, we're just going to see how it goes. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Um, and we're just going to start at it verse by verse. And we're going to take every Sunday, we'll take a couple of verses and move on. Hopefully move on. Um, a couple of them are going to be packed full. Uh, so uh, this morning is going to be a lot of background, but it's very, very important that you understand it. Uh, let me give you a couple of things. The book of Ephesians is six chapters long. Uh, you can read the entire book in less than 30 minutes if you don't stop. Okay? You go stop and start studying, then you're going to get all sidetracked. But if you just read it beginning to end, you can read all six chapters about 30 minutes. I want to encourage you to do that when you can, or at least read a couple of verses or a couple sections ahead of where we are each Sunday. This morning, we're only going to get to two verses. So, um, and if you've got a Bible and you like following along, don't even go to Ephesians. Go to Acts, because uh, that's where we're going to be most of today, is in Acts chapter 19 and 20. I'm not going to read anything from there. I'm just going to tell you the story. Okay? And you can go back and read it, and it'll make a lot more sense after today. Before we do, we've got to talk about the little town, or not a little town, but we've got to talk about the town of Ephesus, because it's very important. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of Ephesus. We're going to go to Acts 19 and 20, see how this whole thing took off, and then we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And that's where we're going today, all right? So first off, we want to talk about Ephesus. Um, what you need to understand and what you need to know about this little, little town of Ephesus is it was a city, depending on who you read, anywhere from 33,000 people to 175,000 people. Um, some estimates go as high as 225,000. Realistically, if I had to put a stake down, I would say figure a town of about 70,000, 80,000 people, about the size of Sioux City. I don't know if it's still that, but what it used to be. Um, Ephesus is one of the larger cities in Asia Minor in the New Testament time. Uh, not only that, but Ephesus was, uh, it was known for its pagan religions and particularly its immorality. Um, our modern day analogy would be um, Ephesus was the San Francisco of the day. Okay? Um, and you know how liberal that city can be at times and the things that it adapts and the things that it embraces. Well, Ephesus was that type of city um, in the day that the New Testament is written. The big thing about Ephesus is the goddess Artemis. Okay? Um, Artemis plays a huge role in the history and the understanding of Ephesus and the understanding of Ephesians and the understanding of Acts chapter 19 and 20. Um, Artemis is the Greek name for a goddess. Um, her her uh, Roman name was Diana. Uh, she was considered the daughter in mythology. She considered the daughter of Zeus and the twin of Apollo, Apollos. So in the Greek world and in the Roman world, as far as the god and goddesses are, this is an important figure. Okay? Um, let me sh- she was known as, uh, put up the first picture, guys. The, she was known as the goddess of the hunt. Uh, she was known as the goddess of wild animals, the goddess of wilderness. Um, she was associated with childbirth. She was associated with 
uh, virginity. She was associated with the protection of young women. Um, She was believed to relieve and bring disease to women. Uh, She was also um, usually depicted as carrying bows and arrows in, in, in mythology and in the statues. When we get to Ephesus, what you need to understand is they had their own version of Artemis or Diana. And they kind of had a patent on it. And they saw Diana as what they called a mother goddess. And they were the ones who really trademarked, so to speak, their impression or their version of Diana okay, or Artemis. Here's what, uh, this one was actually in Versailles. Here's what the one in Ephesus looked like, okay? This is the goddess Diana, okay? Now, in some, we're not sure what those things are on her chest, okay? Um, she is, some people say, some, some interpretation is it, their breasts. She was often referred to sometimes as the many-breasted goddess. Uh, one interpretation is that they're eggs. One is that they're acorns. Uh, One interpretation is they're grapes. Um, There are all kinds of crazy ideas. All of those ideas are important, okay? Because in all of those ideas, there is something that went along with that. Um, As a goddess who is the mother goddess, the one who is like the mother of all gods, so to speak. And this version of Diana, this version of Artemis, was unique to Ephesus, okay? And this was what Ephesus was all about. Now, you know, we look at that and go, who in the world would worship that thing? In their world, this was the center of Ephesus. Okay? Um, Here's how big a deal this is. In Ephesus, there is a temple to this goddess. Okay? Um, And here's what the temple looked like. This is actually a model of the temple. Okay? It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple, uh, here's what one guy said uh, of the, in the time. He said, I've seen the walls, the hanging gardens of ancient Babylon. Uh, the guy is Philian of uh, Byzant, uh, Byzantium. The statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rome, the mighty works of the pyramids, the tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all of these wonders were put to shame. Um, This originally, when it was constructed, 36 of these columns have, at the base of them, have this incredibly unique, uh, incredibly detailed carved uh, items on them. Um, This temple had four bronze statues of Amazon women. When Pliny the Elder talked about this temple, here's the dimensions that he gave us. He said the length of this temple was 425 feet long. So take our two buildings right here and double them. That's how long the temple was. It was 225 feet wide. So take our two buildings and turn them side by side. That's how wide it was. Um, To give you an idea, the Parthenon, which everybody looks at as as this amazing uh, deal in Athens, is half of that size. Um, there were approximately, um, uh, I forget how many columns in this, oh, 127 columns. They were 60 feet high. This is about 28 feet, 26 feet, somewhere in there, so double the height of this, 
okay? Um, construction took, depending on who you read, somewhere between 60 and 120 years to do. Um, this was the center of Ephesus. This was what Ephesus, everybody knew Ephesus was all about this. It's interesting because when they were constructing the temple, Alexander the Great uh, wanted to foot the bill as long as they would put his name on it. So now think about this for a minute. By the way, you want a great lesson in uh, conflict management? This is it. Alexander the Great comes along while you're building the temple and says, I want to pay for the rest of it, but I want my name on it. I want naming rights. Now, how do you tell Alexander the Great no? The guy who was conquering all of the known world at the time. How do you go in and say, no, you can't do that? Here's what they said. I love this. They said, it's not fitting that one God should build the temple for another God. And Alexander the Great went, yeah, you're right. Um, So he, he passed on it. Uh, they built this thing, and, and, and this became a big, big, big issue. So it, whenever you visited Ephesus, whenever you were, you, I mean, the main reason you went to Ephesus was for this thing, and Diana, so it, it's just like us. You know, we went to, my wife and I, for Easter, we went to Red Rock, um, or um, Sedona, and all that, and at Sedona, you know, in the Grand Canyon, you know, you always buy rocks, you know, which is kind of insane. You go somewhere to buy a rock that they're everywhere, but... Um, when you went to Ephesus, you bought a statue of Diana. You bought a statue of, I mean, I mean that was the main trade. That, that, this thing was, was, was overwhelmed with this kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> Ephesus really considered Diana, this version of Diana, their god. And that was a big, big, big deal. Also at Ephesus was, the, was a library. Here's some of the next two pictures are, are a couple of, uh, th- these are the ruins of the library. It held Almost 25,000 scrolls, uh, or 12,000 scrolls, I'm sorry, uh, which was incredible at that time to have something that massive. There's another picture of it. Um, They had, uh, that would be the front of it as you're going into it. They had an amphitheater there. It was the largest in the known world at the time. Uh, Here's a picture of it. It seated 25,000 people. Go to the next one, guys. Uh, This is a picture of the amphitheater there at Ephesus. Uh, I got another picture of it where you can see the road, see the long road going into the the amphitheater um, area. Uh, Ephesus had one of the most advanced aqueduct systems in the known world at the time, uh, which supplied them baths, uh, which was a big deal there. Also, in fact, the aqueduct system was so so, um, well-designed, they actually used it to run a sawmill for marble. Uh, in order to be able to turn a a deal to be able to cut uh, marble. Uh, In addition to that, um, they had a a roof theater, actually, a 1,500-seat roof theater where they could do stuff. The city was known for its occult practices, its witchcraft, um, its things of, of of, of the unseen darker spiritual Satan world. Now, as I'm saying that, some of you are starting to connect dots. Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against principalities, against powers. Okay, this is Ephesus. This is Ephesus. This is what Ephesus was all about. Um, uh, I got a couple more pictures. Let's see, what else have I got? Is that it? Uh, Yeah, this is one of the streets headed down 
Uh, is that the last one? Okay, go to the next one. Then. Uh, here's to give you an idea of a map of, of Ephesus. If you could see, you get an idea of where Jerusalem is and Antioch and, and Philippi. That would, your book of Philippians is written there. Uh, Corinth, First and Second Corinthians is written there. Um, Antioch is kind of the, um, is one of the stops there. Jerusalem is where the church is sending people out. Uh, Paul visits Ephesus on his second missionary journey. So here's the next thing to give you an idea of what he's doing. Um, he goes through, and, and, and you see it's kind of one of his last stops as he, he heads back on his second uh, missionary journey. So this gives you a little bit of background about it. So let's talk about what happens, Acts 19 and 20, when Paul gets to Ephesus. Okay? Uh, Paul comes into Ephesus, and, and you can read this in Acts 19 and, and, and 20, and I want to encourage you to do that if you get a chance this week, because uh, it will help you put some of these pieces together after we talk. Paul visits this place, and when he gets there, there are a bunch of people who were disciples of John the Baptist. They've been baptized under John the Baptist. Paul gets there. They find out about Jesus. They found out about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They want to be Jesus' followers, or as Acts refers to them, people of the way. So they want to follow this person who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. So they become disciples. They, they put their faith and trust in Christ. They become Christians. And Paul spends about three months there talking to them, trying to get them to understand the teachings of the Scripture and stuff like that. And there are some who didn't believe, some who were still struggling, some who still had more questions. So Paul ends up spending another two years at Ephesus. It's one of the longest places Paul ever spends when he's going around dealing with churches. But he spends between two and three years at Ephesus. So this becomes a place that becomes very, very important to Paul in, in, in helping churches and everything else. Um, there's an incredible amount, because this is, a, this is a city of the occult, and this is a city where witchcraft and those kinds of things are, are practiced a lot. There's a lot of demon activity there. So one of the things that you read in Acts chapter 19 is there was a lot involved of, of Paul and the disciples casting out demons. Um, one of the things that's interesting is there's a great story in there about Jewish people. Again, follow, think, think of how this plays out in your mind. Paul comes in, a bunch of people start following him. Uh, the witchcraft, the occult, all of that, um, people who are, are struggling with that start bringing people to Paul. Paul starts casting out demons and freeing these people. The Jewish people are looking at it going, hey, we want a piece of this action. All these people are following them. Nobody's listed up. So the Jewish leaders, some of the Jewish leaders actually go and say, hey, we're going to hang out a shingle. We're going to cast out demons too. Just bring them to us. And so some of the Jewish, Jewish leaders are doing this. And it's interesting. There's an account where as they're trying to cast out the demon, the demons speak. And the demons say, Jesus we know and Paul we know. Who are you? And what happens is the demons do leave those people, and guess where they go? Into the lives of the Jewish people. And when that spreads around town, now everybody's getting taking some serious note of what's happening with these people of the way, these people who have followed Jesus. Um, Ephesus is, and, and you read about this. Ephesus is the place where they bring all of the books together and burn them, okay? Uh, that happens at Ephesus because these people are so steeped in the occult in Acts chapter 19 that when they come to Christ, they change their life. And part of changing their life means I'm going to get rid of all of that stuff. 
So they bring them in. They tell us the value of the books that they burned was 50,000 days salary. So let me put this in perspective for you. Most of you know what you make in a year, okay? So put that number in your head. Got it? Now, multiply it times 136. That's the value of the books they burned that day. Yeah, some of you are going, that's going to take me like the whole rest of the service, um, you know, to do that kind of math. Um, you, you know, just come close. You get an idea of it. 136 years worth of salary. Now, let me ask you something. If your city is centered around the occult and Diana and all that comes with it, and a group of people come in and start to change and no longer want to be associated with that, how do you think that's going to go over? Because see, when you read Acts chapter 19, here's what you find. You know what they do? They cause a riot. And they go in and they grab two of the guys who are part of the church group. They pull them out. Alexander comes along. He's one of the, one of the leaders of the church at that place. He comes along, tries to quiet the riot. Nobody wants to listen to him. The whole town is in an uproar now over these people. Because and, and, a guy by the name of Demetrius, who was a silversmith, rose this whole thing up because here's the thing if you're a silversmith and you're making images of diana and everybody's buying your stuff and now all of a sudden christians aren't following diana anymore and you're starting to lose your income and you are a scribe who copied all the witchcraft stuff and all the occult books and the scrolls and nobody's buying your stuff so they came in and, they, and, 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 and this thing just started. Paul wanted to go be a part of it and, and his, the, his followers went, don't go near that thing right now, man. You know, you're, the, this is bad. I mean, the whole city's ready to kill these people. And it's interesting, there's a clerk that steps up, the town clerk steps up and he goes, time out. He said, these men have done nothing wrong that we can see. It, that we can see. He says, they have, and this is what I think is amazing, they have not blasphemed Diana. How they could stand up in this culture and yet not blaspheme the very God that this culture was all about is amazing to me. It shows some incredible insight in the way they dealt with these people. But basically the town clerk says, look, this is not the forum to do this. If you have a problem with them, you bring them before the courts like we have a system set up to bring it for and if you're not going to do that, then you can't do this. And that is what disperses the crowd. Paul then later leaves. And it's interesting, and you get to the end of Acts 20. Um, as Paul gets ready to leave, he stops by Ephesus to talk to these people one more time before he goes. There is this incredible bond between Paul and the people at Ephesus. Um, and so what you're going to find is then what Paul does later is Paul writes to this church at Ephesus, to the Christians who were at Ephesus, the Christians who he spent a couple of years with. Um, at the same time he writes this book, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are written. So it, it, as you read those books together, you start to see some things that look, sound, sound similar because they were all written about the same time period. Okay? So let's talk about the book, Ephesians, that Paul writes. Um, 
which we're going to be spending a lot of time in and you're going to get to know before it, it's all said and done. It's six chapters long. Um, it is called by many Bible scholars the Grand Canyon of Scriptures. Uh, one writer says it this way. He said it's the crowning glory of the New Testament. Because in these six chapters, it is incredibly theologically deep. You know, I mean, we're going to touch on some stuff, and it's going to be, oh, that's way over my head. But remember this. Paul wasn't writing it as a theology book. Paul was writing it to slaves who had become Christians. So you're going to see that as we play out. It is an incredibly practical book. Yes, he delves into some deep things, and we'll talk about, we'll just touch on one of those this morning. He, he, he delves into some really deep concepts, but he presents them in a way that makes a difference in the way the people live. Um, it's written while he's in prison, in his first uh, imprisonment. Um, it basically is going to focus on two things, your position in Christ, you're going to spend a lot of time there, and your purpose in Christ. Um, first of all, how God sees you, what God did when he saved you, why he saved you. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Um, here are the key words in the book. Uh, riches is mentioned five times. Grace is mentioned 12 times. Glory is mentioned eight times. Full or filled six times. And here's the two words that you, you are going to remember this. When I am done with this, I have, this is my one goal. I've got a lot of goals, but this is the one. The one thing I want you to know when we're all done. I want you, from this point on, for the rest of your life, to associate two words with the book of Ephesians. In Christ. If you're going to read the book of Ephesians, I want you to notice how many times you see that phrase, in Christ. And when we're done, we're going to understand when Paul says, because he says it in other places of the Bible, but when Paul says you are in Christ... I want us all to understand what that really means. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we're headed down this road. Um, you see the idea of church. You see the idea of unity. You see the idea of walking is another incredible theme in this book. Um, it, it's fascinating the way he describes the church. He describes the church as, a, as, a, as people. He describes it as a temple. He describes it as mystery. He describes it as a new man. Uh, he describes it as a soldier. He describes it as a bride. There's a lot of ideas behind what the church is and how the church is to look. Okay? So with that in mind, Ephesians chapter 1. Here we go. The shortest of all Paul's salutations in the books that he writes is in Ephesians. Because again, think about it for a minute. These are people he spent a lot of time with. He doesn't need to go into this big thing. Okay, I am Paul, da 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 so that you know who I am. No, no. He, you know, it's like me calling up somebody going, hey, that's PJ. Boom, 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 boom. Okay? Um, notice what he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Let's stop right there. Paul did not desire to be an apostle. In fact, Paul just wanted to kill Christians. That's Paul's testimony. Acts chapter 9. Paul's goal is to wipe them out. The last thing Paul wanted to do was lead them. But notice what he says. An apostle of Jesus Christ, how? By the will of God. And you're going to see this next week in more detail. But here's the bottom line. You are here today because God has brought you this far on your journey. It's not you. 
It's God. God has worked in whatever ways to bring you to where you are right now. And that's what Paul says. He says, you need to understand. It's not me. I'm not some great. Even though when you study the life of Paul, Paul had the credentials, by the way. He was a student of Gamaliel. Let me tell you something. That was an exclusive club. That would, be, that, would be like, that would be like us saying he was in the top 5% of his graduating class from Harvard. I mean, to be a student of Gamaliel was a big deal. Um, because the only way you could be a student at that level was if somebody thought you could be somebody like Gamaliel. And he was one of the most renowned, even to this day, he's one of the most renowned Jewish uh, rabbis of, of that time. And Paul was one of, Paul was one of his disciples. But Paul didn't mention any of that. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And one of the things that you and I need to understand is what, where we are right now in our life is because of God. And we're going to talk about that because the focus of this, this whole thing is going to be about what God has done in bringing us to this point. And then notice what he goes on to say. To the saints... Who are at Ephesus? Um, let me talk about in Ephesus for a minute, because some of you in your translations may not have that, those two words. Or there might be a note in it if you have a study Bible, and here's why. Um, we believe that this book was written to the Ephesians, okay? because there are some specific things in this book that tell us this is Ephesus, that apply specifically to Ephesus. But this book is also considered, in some translations, in some manuscripts, there's a blank. And it says, to the saints who are at blank. The reason is, ever used a template in like Word or something like that? And you have what? Blanks to fill in, right? This is what we would call in the New Testament a circular letter. What that meant is that it wasn't just to be read at Ephesus. It was then to be passed on to other churches. The fact that Paul stayed in there for two to three years meant that, for instance, Paul probably went to the closer towns. There'd be a problem. Somebody would come. Paul would go to that town. Paul would go to the next town. So it'd be like somebody writing a letter to us as a church, but it really went to all the churches around here. So we would have, it would have a blank. So when Moville read it, it would be to the church at Moville, to the church at Climbing Hill, to the church at Correctionville, to the church at Hornick, to the church at Holly Springs, kind of. Um, you know, it would be to those churches. You follow what I'm saying? So um, we believe it's specifically written to Ephesus, and most translations have that, but some don't, so just be aware of that. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, but what? notice the first word, to the saints. Would you have a problem this morning if I called you saint whatever by your first name? You know, okay, at the end of the service, we're going to have St. Earl come up and close for us. Now, I know my wife is a saint, but um, you follow what I'm saying? I mean, we don't think in those terms, do we? You know, okay, folks, uh, St. Carl's going to talk to you for a few minutes. You know, okay, we're going to have, we're going to have the, the, the children's sermon, so St. Sue's going to come up and share something with the kids. And does that even sound, it doesn't, some of you are going, you know, because you have a liturgical background maybe, 
or because you've always associated saints with some high person or previous thing was way up there and way out, out of, of reach of humanity. Saint just simply means set apart one. Paul, when he writes to these people, says, you've all been set apart. God has, just like he set me apart by the will of God, I became an apostle. God set you apart, and notice what he says, and faithful in Christ Jesus. We think of faithful as the idea of serving or working or doing stuff. When Paul speaks of faithful here, what he, let me give you a different way to say this. To the saints who are in Ephesus, and those who, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's another way to, 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 to translate this passage. For those of you that have faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand God sees you as a saint. He sees you as one he has set apart to be different. He has done that to you. And notice what he goes on to say, grace to you. Grace is the idea that God has given you something you can't earn, deserve, pay for, do anything in order. It is something God did for you. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Does anybody know where that is found? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Why? Because Paul wants to lay this thing out. You have been saved and set apart by faith in Christ, through grace, by grace through faith. God has done that for you. And in God's sight, you are a saint. Now, we don't think that way. How many times do you identify with the idea that, and we're going to talk about this as we go through this series, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know what the problem with that is? Is that true? Yes, that's true. But you know what the problem with that is? You're identifying yourself primarily as what you were, not what you are. You were a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint in Christ seated in the heavenlies. And when you start associating yourself with the way God sees you, you start to think much differently about your life. And he goes on to say this, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace in the Hebrew mind and in the Jewish world and in this time had the idea of well-being. Shalom is how the Jewish people say it. It has that idea of just complete wholeness and wellness. That's a big theme in our culture right now is, is, is this, this work-life balance, this wholeness, this, this idea of body, soul, mind, getting them all connected. And, and, and we're so focused on, on, on that well-being. That's the idea behind this. It's the idea of that your entire life, there is peace with God. There is peace with yourself. There's peace with other people. You are at peace. Shalom. 
And Paul writes to these people who are in this incredibly pagan world, who have gone through this incredibly pagan stuff, who have gone through all of this persecution, who are getting attacked right and left and and hauled into court and everything else. And Paul writes to them and he says, grace and peace, you saints of God who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, look, God and the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, he's in your corner. I want to challenge you this morning because we don't think like this. We tend to focus on all of our negatives and all of the stuff that we were and all this, instead of the stuff, how God sees us as we are. So one takeaway, maybe two. When Paul gets to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and 20, and people start coming to Jesus Christ, their lives change. And their lives change dramatically. And their lives change in such a way that it impacts the world around them. The world around them becomes very, very uncomfortable for them. You see, when you change your lifestyle and you're in a city that's surrounded, that everything is centered around the worship of Artemis, when all of a sudden you go out and say, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. All this stuff that I bought from you, I'm going to get rid of. I'm just going to burn it up. I'm not even going to let somebody else benefit from it. We're tortured at all. When you all of a sudden go in and say, look, we worship the God of heaven who's not, not a graven image. And people stop buying statues. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, the whole marketplace is upended. And all of a sudden, you start doing business differently because you're a Christian. You go to a different standard than everybody else does. And all of a sudden, now people don't know what to do with you. So their conclusion is get rid of you, persecute you, get you to try to go back to the old ways. And the Ephesian Christians don't do it. And it, and it challenges them. So the world becomes uncomfortable. So the world persecutes them. And here's what I'm frustrated with as an American. You know what we do when the world persecutes us? We jump up and down and tell them all the reasons they don't have a right to persecute us. Instead of just saying, fire away. Instead of just saying, you know what? If you're going to make fun of me for my Christianity, then make fun of me for my Christianity. You know, they come to us. Look, you know, I understand we are for the people, we the people, all that. We have a representative government, blah, blah, blah. I get all of that. But you need to understand that everything we do makes them uncomfortable. When people do wrong, we say, you know what? They should pay the price for doing wrong. Choices have consequences. When they say, well, I, you know, I just think you know, it, it needs to be about a right of, of a person. And, and we need to I say, wait a minute, time out. The Bible says this. This is where we stand. This is what we do. They're not going to like that. And what's crazy to me is we have churches in America who are trying to make peace and make, make popular ideas of the world. And, the, and what's happening is the world is influencing the church and it's supposed to be just the opposite. The church impacts the world. When the people of God started coming together and living biblically, it changed what was happening in Ephesus and people got uncomfortable. And that's why Paul writes to these people to go, look, let me tell you what, it's lo- let me tell you what the church looks like when it does that. 
And, and, and he starts off right off the bat by going, understand who you are in Christ. You are a saint of God by your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God will use you if you let him. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Ephesians. That's exactly what happens in Ephesus. And you read Acts 19 and 20, and you realize how much they stirred up this town. When you understand the background of Ephesus, and you're going, whoa. Okay, again, you've got a library with 12,000 scrolls? And you go out and burn scrolls? Because they're teaching things that are contrary to what you now believe? You don't think that gets attention of, of the city? You go out and people stop buying? The, you know, the guy who's gone by and, and been a big proponent of buying statues for all of his friends and neighbors and relatives that would come and visit Ephesus. And all of a sudden now the guy goes, hey, I got a good deal on you. No, I don't buy those anymore. Ooh. And this whole thing, it makes a difference. And, and what I want to challenge you with is this idea. Look, our job is to represent God's kingdom in a world which is the kingdom of Satan. And he's not going to like it. Just like Satan did not like Paul coming in and people coming to Christ and standing up for Jesus Christ. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to go into the world this week and represent Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about doing goofy, stupid stuff. I'm talking about we're, we're called. It, it amazes me when they brought these, when they brought accusations against the Christians. The passage I struggle with, I really struggle in Acts where it goes, they didn't even blaspheme Diana. Oh, they didn't get, in other words, they didn't come up and say, you know, you know, you know, she's this pagan deity that no one, no, they didn't say anything to blaspheme her. They just lived their lives in such a way that everybody knew they wanted nothing to do with her. Oh, that's incredibly powerful. And I just want to challenge you with this idea that as you go out this week to understand God sees you as a saint, one who is set apart, one who is to live it differently because there's a world that's watching. So in every aspect this week that you interact with human beings, you need to do it in such a way that we interact so that people see our God. And we do it in a way that honors him, not in the same way the world does it. And make no mistake about it. When you start to do that, people will get uncomfortable. But we're called to do that. We're called to be set apart. We're called to do it differently. So as we head into this journey, as we talk about what God has done for us and how God sees us and all of that, let's understand that we have a purpose. God has a purpose behind doing that. And I'm not saying we run around and call each other saint. Um, I mean, in the South, they take this whole brother-sister family thing to like a whole new level. You know, you meet anybody from the, you meet somebody from a Southern black church in particular, they have mastered this thing, you know. Uh, you get into a really southern, southern church, black, white, you know, Asian, whatever, they, they get this thing down too. But this idea, you know, it's a brother so-and-so, brother sister so-and-so. Don't hear the idea of, you know, Saint so-and-so, Saint Courtney, you know. Courtney's <laughs> going, uh, you know, that's, that's it. That's how God sees us. We have to start seeing 
ourselves in the same way that Christ sees us. And then we tend to be associated more with trying to do what's right, like a saint does, rather than finding excuses like sinners do. So let's try to do it differently this week. I end it this way. The world has not changed this relationship to Christian. Paul writes a book to explain to people of the way how to live godly in a godless world. Paul helps them to understand their position in Christ and in the world. Ultimately, the church should impact the world and not allow the world to impact the church. Our responsibility is to represent God's kingdom in a godless world. Let's pray. Lord, help us. It's easy, Lord, to start focusing on what we want to do. Lord, help us to focus on what we need to do. Help us to focus on honoring you with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our interactions with people all this week. And Lord, as Satan attacks and as Satan tries to undermine, may we be very aware of a spiritual battle in an unseen world that is focusing on our lives and our hearts. And Lord, may we honor you and may people see Christ in us. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing.